0: Hi everyone. I don't normally jump in at the beginning of a podcast to make announcements, but this one is worth some fanfare. The registration for the February and September 2022 Science Camps are now open. Science Camp tends to fill fast, so I didn't want you to miss out because you skipped the announcements at the end of the podcast. I'll wait until the end to tell you more about what we have planned for Science Camp. For now. Enjoy the conversation with Dr. Sarah Mimi. Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Cohn I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Kimbalia. and. Today we're going to be talking again with Dr. Sarah Mimi. Sarah has been our guest just a short while ago, and we were really just scratching the surface of all the really neat, fun things that Sarah explores. Sarah is a behavioral scientist who teaches at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and her main Interest in research is on goals goal setting and we just our ears perked forward when we heard that and there's lots of material on control that Sarah and I were having a conversation about that I just found fascinating. And so we said we're going to be really greedy and say Sarah we we want to continue the conversation, so we are continuing the conversation welcome back.
1: Thank you, I am absolutely delighted to be back.
0: So Dominique, I, I sort of was very greedy in our first round in terms of, because I wanted to uh, introduce Sarah also as a horse person. And so we went through some of Sarah's background with, with her horses and with the clicker training and that whole wonderful discussion of what do you do when uh, to, to stay connected to the, the horse world and how do you uh, become a welcome guest in other people's barns? So we had that great conversation, and then we we started to dive in on the sort of current research. But I, I feel as though I sort of hogged all the questions a bit. So do you want to do you want to jump in with some of your questions? Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh,
2: well in the exchange of email that we had prior to this podcast this episode we there were a couple of subjects that were mentioned that really interested me mm-hmm. uh one of them was control and boundaries and the yeah. other one was marketing and training and the similarities between the two so i'm interested in both i hope we have time to cover both i'd like to start with control and boundaries mm-hmm. i think you know that's um You hear a lot people use boundaries, I think, as a way to coerce
0: Mm
2: -hmm. other people or animals. And so I think controlling boundaries, for me anyways, is a subject that I'm really interested in hearing you talk about because I think there are so many nuances that we can benefit from.
1: Yes, I love this subject. Uh, this is related to a lot of the things that I think about a lot in my research, and I think a nice place to start with it. I mean, there's is such a rich; it's a really rich topic, and so we'll, we'll kind of start rolling, and we'll see where we go with it. Um, a good starting place, though, is always, I think, you know, as a as an academic, uh, define your constructs. So, what do we mean by these things, and mm-hmm. particularly with control, because we experience it, we talk about it. Um, we all have a sense of what that is, but what is that really uh, definitionally? Mm-hmm. And one way, I mean, I, there may be more than one definition out there, but certainly one that is that is there and that works for me is that the ability to obtain desired outcomes. Um, and so in other words, control is the ability of any individual person or a horse, an animal, to uh, to achieve their goals, to achieve outcomes that they desire. Um, and so I think that that is a very useful way to think about control because that actually doesn't say anything about how many choices you have or don't have. It's really about whether you feel, you perceive, you can uh, obtain the outcomes that matter to you. Um, and so that would be a place that I would start. Does that... So I- I, have Down a question. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I already have a question about yeah. that because I love the definition, but I'm surprised that you're not talking about also the ability to escape in a way the undesired outcomes, that, that well, it's not part of your definition.
1: Well, it, it, that's, a, that's a great question. Dominique. So as a clarification, that would be included in this. So okay. the desired outcome could be something you want to approach. So it could be, uh, to use the the jargon, an appetitive stimulus. It could be something you want to approach and obtain, or it could be an outcome you want to avoid. Uh, so that would be wrapped up in that very general okay. definition. Either okay. way, but that you have control over that. Right. So if we're in concrete horse training terms, you could say the ability to avoid some type of undesired pressure. that having perceiving the ability to avoid that, and thereby escape it, that would increase control, but also perceiving the ability to obtain, you know, some food or social interaction or some sort of other um, positively desired outcome that would also increase control. So it would work on either side. But I do
2: love the fact that you first emphasize the more positive because I think, um, you know, we we've talked on many occasions about the frustration that it creates for animal or people when, even if you think you are in a positive uh, interaction, that if there's not clarity about how to obtain the desired outcomes, that it can be, um, I guess, it, it it gives the learner a
1: feeling that they are out of control. Absolutely, absolutely. So, the feeling of of frustration essentially is a, a type of feeling low control. So mm-hmm. if there is a desirable outcome that you're presented with, and you're perceiving it, and you you perceive that you want it, and you don't feel you can obtain it, that is low control, just as much or, or well, maybe not just as much, but certainly similarly too. if there's something you want to escape or avoid, and you also don't feel you can do that, that mm-hmm. We readily perceive that as low control. I think we are less aware of how um, difficulty or an ability to attain something you want um, to approach something you want also uh, reduces control. Mm-hmm. I, I see a think of a, a really thinking face on Alex, so I'm, I'm wondering what no what
0: no you're I mean, I, I just I, I want to hear first where you're headed with this and then i'll then I'll jump in with my questions.
1: okay. Well so, I I I the, the quite, definition's yeah, so, clear. But yeah. that if there's something you want to obtain, something you want to avoid, and in either side of that coin, if you're feeling you perceive you don't have the ability to obtain that outcome, whichever it might be, uh, that that is reducing control. So very much And, and
2: the lack of that ability could be either through lack of knowledge of how to do it. Yeah. Or you know, because the environment doesn't allow it or there could be many reasons why you have yes. what the ability, the feeling of being able comes from. Right.
1: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it relates to which a lot of listeners would be familiar with that work on learned helplessness. And the reason that is this idea of learned helplessness is so pernicious is that there's some type of aversive stimulus. And because you don't perceive that you can avoid it, turn it off. That is what where you get all this really this low control. You get lots of negative outcomes in that type of a circumstance. Um, whereas the same type of stimulus at the same let's say level of aversiveness, if you feel you can avoid it or effectively turn it off, um, you really it you can you can maintain that perception of control. Um, and I think where this starts to go uh, is into these com- these questions about. Choices and structure and boundaries, and that's where I would naturally kind of take this and and talk about this in an applied setting. But I I want to hear Alex's
0: thoughts. No, no, go there. Go there.
1: Okay. (laughs) So I I know both of you think a lot about choice, and you've talked with a lot of other people on the podcast about choice, and I think it's such an interesting question, and it's a huge topic of research in my area of consumer behavior because it's an obvious relevance, right? How do people choose between different options and what drives choice? So there's a lot of work in my field about choice coming at it from a very different um, perspective than what you get, of course, in um, the animal training literature. But I think think there's a a really interesting nuance to this that I haven't maybe seen in the animal discussions come up as much. And that is um, the idea that choice is not uh, linearly, more choice is not always better, or that choice uh, is something that is very good, it has a lot of benefit, uh, but it also has some costs. And so the type of choices, how they're presented, how they're experienced, really influence those perceptions of control, those perceptions that you can get, that you can obtain Desired outcomes, and so that, as a as a broad topic, is something I think is really interesting and worth discussing, and maybe even some very concrete terms and how we think about training and the choices we offer to the animals.
0: With horses, there's always a human attached
1: to the yep. horse, unless right. it,
0: you know we're not talking mustangs. So choice choice is involved in on the human side of the relationship as well. So the choices we make very much impact the quality of life that our horses have. So a discussion, whether we're looking at uh, choice from the perspective of the horse or how we as uh, horse owners, horse handlers are making our choices, it's all relevant. And that the idea that uh, too much choice can be paralyzing, I think at some <laughs> point we've all experienced that. You know, you go to the store and you think, you know, you're just going to the store to get fill in the blank. And there's 50 different uh-huh. uh, camcorders or, you know, whatever it is. It's like, Okay, this is, uh, how do you choose? How do you choose? And you end up walking out without any of them. Too much choice is paralyzing. So part of choice, I would think, is also learning how to make good choices. And certainly in the training, that's part of, that's part of the for the, for our animals, for children, uh, for ourselves. Part of the training is learning how to make good choices. So you don't come equipped with. Oh, I'm a good, I'm a really good choice uh, maker, but this other person is incompetent.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's there's so many great things in what you're saying there. So one thing on the on the learner side. I think that you're touching on is that choice or the, um, how, how a set of choices are experienced has a lot to do with your expertise and your, your experience in that choice domain. Um, yes. So let's say I, I have a, I'll, I'll give an example, the horse one, um, kind of a consumer behavior horse one. I was on this uh, you know, neighborhood um, listserv type of, you know, social media group in my yes. area. And there was a mother whose daughter wanted to ride and she was asking people for recommendations for where you know her daughter might learn to ride for the first time and i live in a very horsey area there are lots of horses lots of farms and all these people were responding, and some people were saying, "Well, do you want her to do saddle seat or do you want her to do western or does she want to do hunter jumper or does she want to do this or eventing or this or that or or this breed or that breed?" And this and poor woman, what are all those things? Yeah, you could see in the comments, you know, this poor woman is like, oh, "No, she just, I just." You know, and it it was such a nice example. You know, she was trying, people were trying to be helpful and she was trying really hard to respond, Um, but she clearly was overwhelmed and really couldn't. And there's no way that she could have because she doesn't have experience in that domain. So what did she know about her preferences? Well, I'm sure she knew she wanted her daughter to be safe. Um, I'm sure she probably knew that she wanted her daughter to be enjoy herself to learn something i mean she probably sure. had experience and established preferences around some types of attributes she probably knew she didn't want to drive two hours to get to a barn yeah. you know some of these things but she didn't have the expertise to evaluate all those additional layers of options and so it was very paralyzing for her this this um these set of options and i think that's like this idea that choice so but if it's for me as an experienced horse person, I love being in an area with so many choices because that increases the possibility that there's something that meets my very specific and very established well-informed you know desires yes. <laughs> because now yes. i now I say well there's so many many uh, options and so I know exactly what I want and I have the experience to to do that and so I don't have those are easy. Choices for me to process because I I already have that that expertise yeah. and so a lot of uh, consumer behaviors in this area that you know no choice having no options is generally speaking a pretty bad thing for people yeah. and for animals right
0: There's only one barn and it's I don't want to pick a discipline to offend anyone but it um, it teaches mermaid riding. <laughs> <laughs> You have to wear a mermaid's tail in order to to ride the horses, and 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 you really don't see yourself in a mermaid's tail costume riding horses. So, so you think you'll pass? Well, you're you're very creative today. Yes. Yeah, I, I like that. I'm just picturing
1: this. I know. Well, I mean, <laughs> you might have had that actually. I could have been in the I show, been,
0: no but you know, I didn't want to offend anybody by Well, I don't think you some will. Someone, <laughs> I think we're fine. Or someone may say, "What a great idea." Oh. I just picture all those little girls with their uh, you know, in their their princess costumes and their mermaid tails. I'd make a fortune.
1: <laughs> that, that, there might be an opportunity there. Yes, side, yeah. So it'll bring
0: side saddle back.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, so, no, okay. cho- yes. so, so no choice. Yes. So mermaid, bride, or good. nothing. Not good. Yeah. Yes. Not good. So having some, some choice is much better than having none. But as choice increases, as you have more options, um, the, they're basically uh, their cost, the cost of making a choice increases. So yeah. it is cognitively more demanding to process all of those options as you have more and more and more options so it's just literally processing that decision space becomes very demanding and difficult and that's what you were talking about Alex being in the yes. grocery store or we all know that feeling um you know Going the end, a of, a long... yes, the end of a long yes or the end of a long right amazing. yes exactly and you're hungry and you're tired and you just don't really want to think about it and yeah, you don't want yeah. to process all of that choice. So the cost of processing increase. And as you have more and more choices, the the chances that many of those choices are quite similar increase. And so then the trade-offs start, you start to have more trade-offs that you have to yeah. navigate. Um, and what does that mean? That means like, okay, me as this horse person, I'm in an area with a lot of horse activity and I'm a dressage rider and I have certain preferences for the kind of barn that I want to find. And there's a lot of barns. So that's great. I found, I luckily did find one where I'm really happy and, and, and get to ride and, and it works nicely. But if that were choice were to increase even more and more, and if there were actually three or four marks that were very similar to each other and any one of them might be a great place for me to ride, well, that sounds great. That sounds like it should be better. Yeah. It's not. It's actually not better. Yeah.
0: Because if I choose barn A, I'm going to be thinking, oh, would I have been happier at barn B? Would
1: yes. I have been happier? Making the right choice. Making the right choice. The yeah. opportunity cost yeah. Yeah. goes up. So Ooh, this is, you, you can know- make a mistake you can make a mistake yeah, you and make re- a
2: mistake and you're learning history. may be that mistakes are not good.
1: Right. Right. So those two pieces, uh, more choice, it's more to process and you may or may not have the expertise to do it, but then you also have this emotional burden of trade-offs and making trade-offs and, Um, And, and then uh, there's this, you know, we're generally also happier with choices we can't take back. There's some research in this area. So you take it, you make a choice. Well, because what other, what other option do you have? Once you have a child, you know, (laughs) you've got it for most of us. And, you know, people tend not to uh, second guess those sorts of choices because they're irrevocable. And so sometimes that's a really good thing. And so at the very, more mundane level but if you go and you work with a you you buy a particular horse or you work with a particular trainer if you felt you were making that choice from this huge decision space it's harder to just move on and commit to the choice that you made because if anything isn't really quite right in it you're always sort of have that in your mind of like well but i could have gotten that maybe i should have gotten that other horse instead or i should have worked with that other trainer instead or i should have Done this other thing instead, and um, and this is one of the costs of just the the space that we're all kind of operating in. We have more choices than we ever had had you know, historically, if for no other reason than technology. And many many good things come of that, but there is this this cost that we have to navigate, and that emotional cost. So the cognitive cost, and then also the emotional cost of choosing from a big space and making those trade-offs. So how do you make it less painful? (laughs) Ha! Well, a few ways. First, again, expertise. So if you have established preferences, so managing your choices, meaning trying to keep yourself out of really complicated choices that you're not prepared to make, that's one thing you can do. This gets very abstract, but structure and boundaries is another, this sort of gets us into that because that's one way to manage this. So what does that mean? So this is very concrete. There is a school of thinking, an area of of research inquiry and also popular uh, discussion called choice architecture. Um, And this was popularized a little over 10 years ago by, um, uh, in a book called Nudge, which, what some of you may have read, yeah, oh, by yes, Richard Thaler and Cass yes. Sunstein. And he's
0: actually uh, re, he's
1: uh, re-issued. reissued it. He's, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so this this idea of choice architecture, it, it sort of lives in the let's say behavioral economics decision space, almost in the space of my field. And what it really is just referring to is how you structure a choice environment, and from the kind of value lens, the sort of philosophical lens of people in um, the sort of nudge world. They would also say you need to structure choice environments so that you don't restrict people's freedom, you don't restrict people's ability. uh, You don't have any essentially you're not coercing people into making any specific type of choice, but you're increasing the chances that they make choices that are in their own best interest. And so one place this comes into play would be you have a new job which could be great and it's a nice job and you have benefits and you're in the United States. And that's a good thing because that means you have health insurance and you might have a retirement plan. People who live in other countries might have all these things wrapped up in their social systems, but in the U S this is a big, a big deal for many people and you get your job and you, you know, going on day one and you have to sign up for benefits. And it is the most, it's just the most like impossible choice structure you can imagine because you, you're you in some like one hour seminar with human resources and you're being shown 18,000 different, you know, healthcare plans with all kinds of costs and trade-offs and different premiums and benefit levels. And you're also looking at, you know, do you want to save for retirement or do you not, or do you, you know, which fund do you want and how much allocation and incredibly complicated choices that most people uh, do not have expertise, domain-specific expertise to make comfortably for themselves. They're cognitively demanding. They're emotionally demanding. And can, you know, the idea of course architecture is to say, can we do better? Because what happens when you face, pe- when you put people in a situation like that, really what often ends up happening is the choice is so demanding, so difficult. People choose not to yeah. choose. So it's avoidant yeah. choosing. the The choice space is so hard to navigate that you just opt out of it which means you take whatever is the default, which in a lot of workplaces means you don't save for retirement and you take whatever is the default um, medical plan, which may or may not be suited to you. And so a lot of the work in these areas around choice architecture is they look at how do you simplify those choices and structure those choices to to help people find options that are best for them without necessarily coercing them into into doing things. So the most basic way is you default people into retirement savings. And then surprisingly, so many people, yeah. many more people yes. save.
0: So you have to opt you have to opt out yeah. rather than opting in. So if, if you're just automatically opted in, then the effort is to opt out. Yes. But if you're opted out and you have to make the effort to sign up, then you're less likely to sign up for something that might be of benefit to you.
1: Yes, yeah. correct. Correct. And if you simplify often in these simplify the choices, so reduce the number of options that are available. Again, it sounds like reducing the number of options available would decrease well-being, would decrease welfare, because now you don't have, you know, again, culturally as Americans, we're very we really attached to the idea that choice is good and that more choice is better. Right. And so we really resist the idea that giving that it could be better to give me fewer options for my health care or fewer options for my retirement. But in reality, if you reduce that decision space down, then you really do increase the chances that I actually will get something that works for me. So so that's one way I'd like to bring this around to, to the horses and to the training, because I think also this, you know, we're talking kind of at a high level and talking about people making choices, but. I think these are so applicable to the training. Yes, I agree. On both yeah. sides. So on the learner side, the learner anytime an animal is in a training situation, they are making they're presented with choices about what they might do and they're they're in that kind of new employee on day 1 trying to pick their retirement plan sort of situation. They they have to make choices about what to do, how to respond in the environment. And then as trainers, we are choice architects. We are structuring the choices that we're presenting them with and structuring the options that are available or the options that are most readily available. And I know this is a huge theme in your work, so.
0: So it's uh, that whole, it's the whole antecedent arrangement. One language set, um, make the right thing easy. That's another language set, but it's all saying the same thing of how do you set up the environment so that your learner can be successful and then what does successful mean it means that they're able to obtain desired outcomes and we're able to obtain the desired outcomes that all of mm-hmm. our needs are are met and 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 you can arrange the environment so that it's very easy for your animal to make the right choices you know to oh you, you know yeah. you want me to you want me to go to that mat you know, well, how easy or hard do we make it? And a lot of the times, we make it way too hard. Yes,
1: yes. And not just to go to the mountain. How hard is it to go to the mountain? But again, in this idea, you know, that you were talking about a bit, Dominic, too, that that there is a lot of emphasis on giving animals choices and giving them control in the training, which is a great thing. But then it's this balance of thinking: what are the choices I'm presenting? to this horse or this animal and are, do they have the ability to, to make that choice? And so what it might be, if you're talking about mats, you've got mat one and mat two, and you would teach mat one as you know you would work on teaching the horse, let's say to just go and station on one mat. And then maybe you in a separate session or another part of that session, you teach them to go and station on another mat and they have two behaviors that they are familiar with and comfortable with, and then perhaps you might present them with a choice of mats or choice of behaviors, but you wouldn't take a horse who has only ever stationed on one mat and offer it lots of choices.
0: Or even backing up to just the first mat, because when I teach mats, I want people to use a mat that's roughly doormat size. It can be smaller. You know, but roughly in the size, just to visualize it, of a doormat. I don't want you using a sheet of plywood. You know, so if I'm taking a piece of plywood that's roughly the size of a doormat versus a sheet of plywood, which is what's a sheet of plywood these days? It's four by by eight. Yeah, four by eight feet. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that when I have a doormat size mat the horse has the option of saying I don't want to step on it he can step around it he can step over it because it's small enough that he can choose not to step on it if I have yep. a plywood size piece of doormat then I am reducing the option of when you come up to this thing Yes, you could probably jump four feet and clear it. You know, most horses probably could do that. But I really am reducing the, the option. Mm-hmm. And in a way that is putting the horse yeah. in a compromised position. Right, right.
2: But I want to talk about when we really give choice to our animals. Because usually we have a goal behavior, step on a mat.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And... Yeah, okay, we won't force the horse to step on the mat, but if usually in most training situation, if he doesn't step on the mat, he doesn't get the reinforcer. Mm-hmm. No. He only gets the reinforcer if he steps on the mat and you may wait him out a little bit, but eventually you're usually either putting something on extinction, something else that you don't want, or
0: you're withholding reinforcement well we also have to throw in there are you outcome oriented or process oriented so if i'm standing in front Mm -hmm. of the mat and i'm i'm outcome oriented i'm i may be saying the only way that you're going to get that reinforcer is if you put your foot on the mat because that's all i can see because i'm outcome Mm -hmm. oriented And that's when we get into the scenario that you were describing. But if I'm Mm process-oriented, then I'm going to be saying, you know, what I'm asking you to do is to shift your balance forward, click and treat, shift your balance forward, click and treat. And there happens to be, Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, there happens to be a mat in the path that you would normally walk over. But because the mat is small enough, you can answer my request to go forward and not step on the mat. And you would get clicked and reinforced because you re, you gave me what I asked for. Forward with humans, I think we are presented with more choices. We're presented with choices because we have learned from infancy on how to make choices. So when we were little, you know, you and I'm, I don't have children, so I cannot speak from direct experience, but. You don't go to the ice cream store and say that has 39 flavors that they advertise and say to the to a toddler which of the 39 flavors, do you want you say do you want chocolate or vanilla. And as that child learns to make taste preferences, then you can start to broaden out, do you want chocolate vanilla or strawberry. So they're learning to make choices.
2: Or if you give them a lot of, you know, I remember when I was a little girl, we would get these um these chocolate boxes. My father was a doctor, and so he got all these little gifts. And we got for some reason at that time, I guess sugar wasn't the poison <laughs> that we consider it to be today. So it was still a suit, it was still a gift that you would give. But anyway, so we would get these chocolate boxes and you know the ones with all the different like creams and flavors yeah. inside. Yeah. To me, a lot of those are yuck. I don't. I like yeah, the ones yeah. with the nuts and the chocolate and the like crunchy things, but the creamy white and yellow and whatever color there was at that time. And so the boxes would be on the coffee table in the living room, and what I would do is I would take a bite, and if I didn't like it, I would just you put it back. Chocolate, <laughs> not I back. It. I wouldn't put it back. I would just put it like on on the edge of the table. So there would be like sometimes five sick chocolates that were rejected, but I didn't throw them out. I thought, I don't know, maybe someone else will like them. And then I would finally, and I would look at the description so that I would learn which one I liked. That's how I learned that I didn't like the creamy ones and that I did like the ones with the nuts. But there was no bad consequence. You know, my father would or or my mother wouldn't get into a fit
0: because there were those six little leftover. Chocolate. But there was the consequence of you had that early experience of not all chocolates are equal. There are some that I like. But I didn't get punished for making
2: the wrong choice of chocolate, you know, other than maybe having the taste that
0: I didn't like in my mouth. But you don't, you don't have to be, you know, with a child where you take them to uh, the ice cream store where they're 39 flavors. We're not saying you're going to be punished if you Choose choose an ice cream cone that you don't want, but you probably
2: won't buy six in a row probably if he doesn't not. like it. Probably you
0: know?
1: not. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. As the parent of a young child, I would say no. I would not go buy six. <laughs> but I, I I you know to build on that, I, I have a a similar story, which is my son is now four, and part of his bedtime routine is you know reading a couple of books before as we're going through that routine and he has uh, lots and lots of books, which is wonderful. He had this bookshelf in his room with all of these books on it. And one of the things that was happening, kind of breaking down in his bedtime routine is even though he loves reading the books and he loves reading them with us and we like reading them with him, it was becoming actually this problematic sort of aversive part of his routine because He wanted to choose the book. He didn't want me to pick a book. He wanted to choose it, but he really, it was too many books. He's tired at the end of the day. So then it would just become this like ordeal of the books. And what I started doing was um, going into the room before, so arranging the environment, um, before (laughs) I was in there with him and I would sort of pick out a couple like, of his greatest hits, you know, or or one that I knew he would have probably like, and maybe one other. And I would put, we always read one book in a chair and one book in in his bed, and I would put two on the chair and two on the bed. And so structured, the Mm. choice of reduce the decision space down and structured it. And then that made all the difference, because then he could come in and say, oh, I want to choose. Do I want this one or this one? You know, and, and I would sort of, again, put two books in front of him, where one I was pretty sure he might really want to read and one he might not want to read. And so it was, again, sort of fairly easy, but he could have whichever he wanted. And so it was, um, you know, and now, again, to your point, Dominique, was I giving him the option to not go to bed? No, not really. Or was I giving him the option to sort of make any possible choice? Uh, I mean, we were going to be staying in the room. And if he had said, I don't want to read any book, that would have been OK. Um But by structuring it, he felt comfortable with it and felt control over. So
0: what he's learning is confidence in that he makes good choices. So you've Mm -hmm. structured the environment. He chooses a book. He discovers that he likes the book he chose. So he becomes confident Mm -hmm. that he's able to make good choices. And then you will gradually expand increase
1: Increase, yeah three Uh books four books which which we have actually already done because now he still has this big case with all these books in it but now he's a little older and I got uh, a case that holds just a small number of books and it displays them vertically like the face out so you see it's down low at the side it's sort of like what they use in a bookstore for like a kid's bookstore and so it's down low and it only holds a few books and the books are cover out not spine out And so they can see the cover of the book and so now he has i don't know maybe eight books on that bookshelf and that's what he chooses from every night and he really Mm -hmm. likes it
2: but you know my question for the animals is that because we used to do let's say positive reinforcement training with dogs and horses and now in the past few years, we've seen more and more farm animals being treated this way, being offered to use their behavior to access positive reinforcement. So we've expanded it, you know, to animals that were used to not being treated this way. And now I'm thinking, okay, we're starting to use what we we call start buttons, Or although good trainers have always use in a way, the body language of the animal to proceed or not proceed. But I'm wondering if there will be an evolution, you know, because right now we have our goal behavior, and we we have developed all these great strategies to get there. But are we really giving our animals a lot of choices? Maybe sometimes we are, you know, I'm just not thinking about those examples right now. But I wonder how it will evolve. Because I think that a lot of what people people were afraid before of the chaos that giving a choice to an animal could generate, and we're we're seeing that there's no chaos. On the contrary, we're just getting animals that are happy to do what we ask them to do, and that you know the punishment doesn't have to be part of the strategy. So. I I just wonder, you know, it's a philosophical
0: question. Will there be more Mm. choices for animals in 200 years? I I think we need to go back to what Sarah's describing with her son. So her son is learning about making choices and about making choices that gets him to the desired outcomes. And, And I think often we forget We forget that this process has been ongoing through our whole lives. So we, you know, we, uh, we, we arrive at adults. We have forgotten how we learned the process of what we're choosing to to wear on a given day. You know, we, we've forgotten that what we went through as small uh, people learning um, no, you, you, you can't wear the, the mermaid tail to, uh, to school. Um, not today, dear. I don't know why that mermaid tail seemed to be, but uh, anyway. Um, and, and perhaps the, you know, so we forget that whole process, that learning process that has occurred so that when Sarah's son is uh, a few years from now, that he will be able to go to one of those mega bookstores. Where there is this, which I find overwhelming, I'd much rather go to a small bookstore. But you go into those mega bookstores, and he'll be able to to make a selection. You know, no, I don't want um, I don't want the biography section or the history section. I want the 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 sci-fi section. I want the, the science section. And, and and I'm in the science section, and I don't want I don't want the mathematics or the physics. I want you know, some so he'll he'll have the skill to do that. And I think we lose track of. the that choice building architecture that occurs for any and all individuals, and you just as a as an example that maybe we can relate to. So um, in the in the, the good old days, if we can remember back that far, when we went to restaurants pre COVID and as a vegetarian, most menus there would be one choice. Maybe if you're lucky, two choices. But basically, mm-hmm. I never had—I didn't practice making choices when I went to a restaurant, so that skill was not. You had a lot of pasta. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, she said so enthusiastically. So, um, <laughs> so that skill was not well developed. So when I, when I was in yeah. a restaurant where there were multiple choices because they, they really looked after their vegetarians, it would feel paralyzing. How do I choose? Because I didn't have the practice of making those choices. So I think with our horses, a great deal of the training is about developing that ability to make good choices. So when we start out with the horses, we don't give them infinite choices. Sort of like playing portal. You know, when Portal first, I, I don't want to call it Portal, when the table games first started where you had a lot of objects and you put them on the table, and the first few times that I encountered the table games, there were a lot, you, you, you had this huge assortment of things that were put out on the table, and then it was, well, which one does the person uh, and What do you do with it? And it was paralyzing for the trainer. What do I teach? I don't know what I'm supposed to teach it was paralyzing yeah. for the learner what am i supposed to do there are all these objects and now we're much more structured about how we use those yep. those objects you put one thing out or two things out it's much and you you've carefully arranged what you're putting out and it makes it much easier for the learner to very quickly experience success and then as you begin to, to develop the concepts of what you want me to do with that object, I can put more things out because you have a, a larger repertoire to know what to do with them and to make good choices with them. And I think the same thing happens with the horses. One of the things that I keep saying is that training creates more freedom. Now, I see that with my my horses, that I can give them more options. I can leave gates open. I can give them much more freedom within their environment, because they have learned how to make good choices. Yeah, and I, I guess in a training session, you know, sometimes you put out different
2: options for, you know, mats and a little jumping something and a little this and a little that. And we all know our horses have preferences. Yeah. And, you know, we can allow for those preferences and we can use even those preferences in, in the training session to reinforce some other things. But I think that's maybe one right. place where we are giving choices is that, well, yeah,
0: you can go there or you can do that. Right. But if I, if I didn't teach my horse what to do with a ball, what to do with a mm-hmm. mat, what to do with some cones, you know, so that there was an interaction that involved those those objects, my horses would probably ignore them. You know why? Why, yeah. why would I go over to as a horse? Uh, I might I might worry about the ball, but I wouldn't necessarily go over and engage with the ball unless I'd had some prior experience that showed me that engaging with the ball led to things that that I enjoyed—movement, goodies, you yeah. know, whatever it was. So there was a learning process that broadened out the horse's repertoire so now you can you can put all of the you can have this amazing playground and you can take your horse into this amazing playground and say what do you want to play with today and the horse may, might go mm-hmm. over to the ball he might go over to the cone but it's because of his it's it's because of his learning history that he's that he has a preference yeah and certainly you know, the enrichment programs are
2: a lot about you know choices and they all get reinforced you know you can get food here under that over this through that ball or whatever so enrichment programs are a good place where we offer choices to our animals and i'm sure in I'm sure we will find new ways, you know, that's what I'm hoping anyway, that's what I, where yeah. I was getting to that I'm hoping that, you know, in 200 years, there may be places where choices are offered that we're not even thinking of right now. Well,
0: let, let, let's hope we don't have to wait 200 years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I mean, so in in um, just to get back, Sarah, to what yeah. you were saying. So in this case, the boundaries are not used to discipline but they're used to make the learner successful
1: yes so mm-hmm. structure so when I say we can say boundaries and structure those let's use those interchangeably and okay. what those really are uh, well cognitively anyway it's an information reduction mechanism mm-hmm. so what do I mean by that when you're if you look at let's keep it in horses. you look at the arena if you have 20 different objects, and they're spread out all over an arena, that's a very complex set of information to process. And even if all of those objects might lead to rewards, so it's all positive, they're all maybe going to be clicked and reinforced equally, you have to choose still which one do you want to go to. And and so there's just a lot to process there. And so as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, that complexity has costs. There's a burden associated with that. If you took the same number of objects and you put them into piles, like in this corner, there's some mats, and in this corner, there's some balls. And in this corner, if you structured them, you're reducing the complexity and therefore you're actually making it easier to choose. And by making choices easier, you increase perceptions of control. So when a choice feels easy, we feel more control because, yeah. so so, so it, it, it's like, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm getting circular, but it's, there, there's something I think counterintuitive in this, which is that restricting choices by imposing boundary and structure actually can be beneficial, often is beneficial, um, because it, it can increase feelings of control. And one of the ways we know that in people is that, so we know from a lot of, there's a lot of work in psychology and consumer behavior around this, that people tend to feel more control when they're in more structured environments. So physically structured environments, or even uh, structure like social structure and hierarchy, they can help people feel more control. And conversely, when we feel low in control, uh, we seek structure and we, we it's all compensatory structure seeking. So, so how
2: do we do that for ourselves? you know, because you're talking when someone else is setting it up for you because they know better. But let's say you want to buy a car and there are all these cars and you kind of get overwhelmed. And so how do you set it up for yourself to simplify it
1: for yourself? Yeah. So, well, there's the two pieces. I'll I'll say, how do you compensate? So those are, um, those aren't really related to the direct choices that you're dealing with, but when you're feeling low in control in general, People seek oh. uh, one of the ways that we compensate is we seek structure. So if you're feeling threatened, you feel low control, uh, you tend to prefer it in very mundane ways and in more con- more consequential ways. So you w- you are more likely to prefer, let's say, a piece of art that is like geometric and has you know borders on it, visual borders and boundaries in in art versus something that's you know kind of a Jackson Pollock sort of. Uh, um, even if they're both abstract, you would prefer the, you know, the um, Mondrian boxes and um, color blocking, and which I, I really like. Uh, I love that sort of aesthetic. Um, there's, uh, I'm looking, you know, some of these studies that have looked at this. People, when they're low in control, they tend to prefer more hierarchical social structures. They'll they'll seek structure that way, even down to the level of you can put stimuli in front of people that have, you know, visual. Uh, images that are actually random, that are not patterned, and people will will actually perceive patterns. Where we'll look for patterns where there are none, as a way of compensating for feeling low in control. So the idea there, you know, the structure feeling, structure feeling that we're in uh, ordered environments. It allows us to feel more control in part because it makes our environments more predictable, and so predictable environments are a really big piece of this predictability is a really big piece of control. And I think this, without taking us too far off course, also I think connects to where even outside of the approach of that we're in with positive reinforcement and clicker training, um, even horses trained with other methods, when there is a lot of structure and predictability in their training and in their environments, um, they can actually often be very comfortable and, and do well um, in part because they know what's coming. They know what to expect. They know what to do to obtain what they want and so, or want to avoid. And so I think we're, we're very used to thinking about structure and fewer choices as bad and boundaries as restrictive. Um, but we actually really need them. And if you talk to parenting people, I'm not a parenting expert. I'm a parent, but not, not a domain expert like someone like Susan uh, Friedman would be. But this is a huge part of what uh, they talk about with children, children, you know, what we think we want, what we say we want, and what we actually need are often not the same thing. Uh, And Mm. so we might feel that we want, we usually would choose to have more choice, um, even when we're worse off for it.
0: So I can see a conflict there between a horse owner who feels very comfortable going to a barn that has stalls and small Mm -hmm. square paddocks. That her horse lives in, mm-hmm. and where that feels like a very comfortable environment because it has mm-hmm. structure and boundaries, but mm-hmm. the horse is going to be more comfortable if you take those yep. that structure and boundary
1: away. So there,
0: you're in conflict. Yep. You have a conflict, and we
1: see this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, stalls are really reassuring for the people, for us. Yes, yeah, 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 they really are. And maybe not all horses in all circumstances, but many, many horses are better off not being in their stalls (laughs) or certainly spending a lot less time in their stalls than they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I apologize if this is getting meandering, but I also think that this relates to the discussion around how we teach cues Um, and how we structure the training and teaching of cues. I saw, oh, years and years ago, over 10 years ago, a dog trainer at Clicker Expo presenting about um, cues. And I really should remember her name. Um, She was from Northern Europe and I cannot remember her name. So I apologize to her. But she was talking about training. She had this idea, you might recognize this, of like the file drawer. To
0: be um, Sessy Edford, probably.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. She had this concept of of sort of the file drawer and yes. teaching cues. And so there are certain behaviors that you shape facing the dog. And so even though you might have sort of different cues for those, they're all in this sort of file drawer of things you can do facing your person. And then there are other behaviors you would have shaped in a different circumstance or a different physical orientation. And so those go into that dog's, you know, file drawer of things that I earn reinforcement or cues that work when I am oriented to my person in this way. And I didn't think about it through this lens at the time, but through this lens of structure and boundaries, it's actually a really brilliant strategy because it's putting structure. So you're, you're teaching cues, but the cues are attached to, they live in these structured, you know, essentially file drawers. And With the horses, there might be certain behaviors you train in the stall, certain behaviors you train in the arena, certain behaviors you train in the barn aisle, certain behaviors you train in the paddock, you know, and the behaviors are attached to these different external structures. um, And that really helps the learner. It really, really helps them. Even if they're all positively trained, all can lead to different types of reinforcement because it reduces how much they have to process and think through. It reduces their options. So it's, oh, if I'm with this person in this sort of a circumstance, well, maybe it's head lowering, or maybe it's grownups are talking, but it's definitely not. Right. PF. Yes. <laughs> or, <Yes. laughs> you know, so, so, so I think, you know, some of the conversation you have around, you know, people who are first learning and the kind of throwing of behaviors and some of the frustration that can happen around that for the learners, yeah. this idea of, Structuring the cues and the training environment is, is yeah. a real antidote to um, that.
0: What's one of the things that Ceci was te- were and Morton were teaching is they they wanted their obedience dogs they 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 wanted to win titles, so they wanted their dogs right, to be right. as crisp and precise as all of the conventionally trained dogs. But they also wanted that lovely oh, you know, um, uh, offering of behavioral liveness, that interactive turned on brain. You know, uh, you know what what some people <laughs> have referred to as that, you know, they wanted their dogs to be operant. You know, that expression, um, which yeah. I'm sure makes some of the behavioral analysts yes. just cringe when they hear that phrase, but it had it had a meaning. Are we ever right. not right. operant? Um, yeah. yeah, and yeah. Yeah, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. Anyway. Anyway, so no, what, no, no. They would, what they would do is they would take their, their dogs into the training space and they would say, we're not cueing. So they would stand with their arms at their side, very rigid, saying, we're not cueing. And I would roll my eyes and say, yes, you are. <laughs> but what that, that body language cue was saying is offer me behavior that has been reinforced previously in this environment and I will, I will reinforce you. And so the dogs the dogs could spin or lie down or jump over poles, you know, whatever it was. And then the first time they gave a formal, deliberate cue, asking the dog to sit, asking the dog to, to spin, whatever. Then after that, it was only the deliberate, I am telling you I want this behavior it was only those behaviors that would get reinforced, nothing else. So I thought about that, and what I took away was uh, what I think of as sort of laundry lists, that there are behaviors that are appropriate in certain environments. So in the arena, it's totally appropriate for my horse to canter, but in his stall, I'd rather not have him cantering. So it's it's exactly what you're saying. So in this environment, you can you can take a nap, you can... Eat hay, you can drink water, you can watch the other horses in the barn, you can pose. All of those are things that are on the to-do list that you can choose from and, and, and other things as well. But cantering in your stall? No. Rearing? No. So in the in the arena, that environment brings this laundry list, this list into play. These are these are possible behaviors that now become active on the de- desktop that you can choose from, and that makes it simpler because we know that in the, so in this environment it's totally appropriate and you can choose from this list. But then I may narrow it down through active cues to say out of that list this is what I want, and it makes it, it makes it much easier. So it's it's basically saying the. The same thing it was just a way of how do we structure uh the environment to make it really easy for our learners yes
1: and by making it easy they have perceived control yes
0: it's like for robin i taught him that that default behavior of the pose so he could be in his stall and he could pose and i would come over and interact with him which is what he wanted so i taught him i gave him uh an option that 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 got him to the desired outcome, which was social interaction with me. And if I hadn't mm-hmm. taught that, then I might have had a horse who whose choices were things that I didn't want. Bang on the door! Oh, that got that got her right. attention. She's yelling at me now, yes. but it's all right. She's at least paying attention to me. So you know, and that gets back to the. To the early training the structure of it so but I think I think the boundary part is really and that I think that's fascinating and some of the you know that you would choose this form of art to put on your wall versus that form of art I just think that's fascinating that it wasn't um, it wasn't just some arbitrary personal uh, you know personal choice that there was this deeper layer underneath
2: that what are other what are other uh, ways for us to um to simplify that
0: to simplify
2: uh, for ourselves simplify for ourselves you yeah. know you have to choose a car or pick a husband and future father for your children how yeah. do you pick among <laughs> all the choices
1: <laughs>
0: yeah yeah here's the music i was so tempted to let this conversation about choice play as one unit, but I promised you that I would tell you about Science Camp, so I wanted to make sure that I left some time for that. So we'll break off here. We'll pick up next time with this question. What are some ways to simplify things so it's easier to pick from all the choices? And so now, speaking of choices, I know we all have many virtual learning opportunities to choose from, and here is one more, and that's Science Camp. For those of you who aren't familiar with Science Camp, let me wind the clock back a little. Actually, let me wind the clock back rather a lot to 2014. That's when Kay Lawrence organized what she called the Five Go to Sea Conference Cruise to celebrate her 60th birthday. She invited Ken Ramirez, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, and myself to participate in a five-day adventure in the Caribbean. If you're counting, that's four. Five referred to the conference attendees who joined us. The reference goes back to Enid Blyton's series of children's books, The Famous Five, and the many adventures they went on. And adventures we certainly had. This was my first time on a cruise ship, my first time on the open ocean, my first time in the Caribbean. And for me, it was the perfect mix of intense learning experience and holiday adventure. We spent our days at sea engaged in the conference. Each evening from the top deck, we watched the sunset over the ocean while we played the learning game portal. That was followed by more conversations at dinner in one of the many restaurants the cruise ship had to offer. I returned home with a notebook bulging with notes. Our days had certainly not followed the usual format of conferences where you have a rigid time schedule. This lecture is presenting from 10 to 11, and then he has to stop so another speaker can begin. No, this conference was centered around the ideas we were presenting and the questions people had. The schedule was flexible. We could give each topic the time it needed. If we found a gem that needed mining, we took the time to explore it. We could each contribute, ask questions of the other presenters, add our own take on the subject. And what evolved from this more relaxed format was just an amazing exchange of ideas. My notebook was stuffed full of page after page of things I wanted to think about further. For me, the highlight of that conference was Jesus' talk on resurgence and regression. I had first heard him give this talk at the Clicker Expo during the winter, and during the cruise, it was my number one request. I wanted to hear that talk again. And because we had the luxury of time, Jesus was able to expand beyond what he had presented at the expo to give us a much deeper understanding of the subject. That first conference cruise was followed the next year by a second cruise, and then we shifted to a land cruise in the UK. Kay named this conference Training Thoughtfully. Again, the conference had a similar format. We picked topics we wanted to explore more deeply, and we gave each of the presenters the time that was needed to dive in deep. I loved the land cruises and the format of these conferences. They were deliberately kept small to encourage participation and conversation. Our UK land cruise was followed by another Training Thoughtfully conference the following year in the US. It's always difficult to coordinate everyone's schedules. So the year after that, we shifted gears and Dr. Michaela Hempen joined us and organized our first science camp. That was held in a just gorgeous, beautiful mountain retreat near Parma, Italy, where Michaela keeps her horses. This was a true camping experience. Participants slept in tents. We ate our meals together under an open pavilion. We never had an actual campfire, but we sat up late every evening in campfire-style discussions about the day's presentations. Our presenters were Jesus, Mary Hunter, Michaela, and myself. Plus, we were joined by a just superb Feldenkrais practitioner. Again, the format allowed for flexible schedule, so we could explore in depth the subjects that were of interest. My role was primarily as orchestra conductor, uh, which meant that I made sure to give Mary and Jesus center stage. This was completely selfish on my part, I know what I teach. I wanted to hear their talks. Our next science camp was supposed to be at my barn in the spring of 2020. Of course, the virus changed that plan and we switched instead to a virtual format. Our first virtual science camp was held over Labor Day weekend, 2020. We loved that format. We had our second virtual science camp in February of 2021 And we followed that one up with another Labor Day weekend science camp in September of 2021. What is emerging from science camp are the details of what it means to be a constructional trainer. Mary Hunter has been taking us through a core foundation centered around airless learning and what she has dubbed atomic shaping. That's an expansion of the loopy training teaching structure. Jesus has taken us on a deep dive into stimulus control. Stimulus control may not sound that earth-shaking, but it is. It changes completely how we view shaping procedures. Michaela has presented her work with Blondie, the mayor who is the subject of her cribbing project. Michaela has done a superb job documenting her work with Blondie. She videos every training session So with Blondie, we get to see how the concepts that Mary and Jesus are talking about can be applied to real-world training. My role in the conference is primarily to act as the orchestra conductor. I want to make sure that this conference turns into what I love, which is a discussion driven by our questions and not just another conference that's a series of one PowerPoint presentation after another. I want Science Camp to push our ideas forward, which means that there's value in really getting everyone involved. And that certainly has been what has been happening. The presentations are a launching point for what have become really very powerful discussions. Jesus, Mary, Michaela, and I are all enjoying Science Camp and we want to continue to present them. But we are faced with the dilemma of how to weave new people into the mix. We don't want to lose new people because they haven't been with us conference by conference to hear the evolution of these ideas. We don't want people to sign up and then find that they're totally confused because they've missed the first several science camps. But if we spend our time reviewing what has already been covered, then that isn't fair to our regular attendees who want to move on into areas that we haven't yet explored. And that's certainly what we want to be doing. We want to push the envelope further out. So the solution is we're going to hold two science camps this year. The first will be February 17th through 20th, and then the following Saturday, February 26th, we'll meet up again for a campfire discussion. The February science camp is for first-time campers. If you have always wanted to attend science camp but weren't able to make it, this camp is for you. We'll be including the key topics from previous science camps. Mary's errorless learning and atomic shaping presentations, Jesus's what is learned, stimulus control and cues evolve, Michaela's work with Blondie. As always, Anita Schnee will be joining us. Anita is a Feldenkrais practitioner who has been following my work. Her sessions give us all a break from sitting at the computer, and they also let us experience directly the constructional training concepts that are being discussed. I'll be presenting as well on a topic of my choice, probably something around loopy training and reversibility. That's a teaching strategy that I've used for decades that very much relates to what the others are presenting. And as always, I will be the orchestra conductor. Our second science camp will be held over Labor Day weekend. This camp will be for experienced campers. We're going to be diving into some new topics. At the moment, the proposed topics are chain analysis, reinforcement systems, an even deeper dive into stimulus control, reversibility, pauses and resets, and the, in quotes, the strength of the behavior. What makes Science Camp so unique is this program is subject to change depending upon what concepts have grabbed our interests between the posting of this event and Labor Day weekend. The promise is we'll be presenting on topics that take us deeper into an understanding of behavior and training, but the actual topics may not be the ones that we have listed here and Those of you who are experienced campers know exactly how this works. So you know that the flexibility is part of what makes Science Camp so really valuable. The details for both Science Camps, both the February and the September Science Camps, are posted on my website, theclickercenter.com. So when you go to the homepage of theclickercenter.com, just pull down the drop-down events menu at the top of the page, and that will take you to the science camp details. In the pricing for the February science camp, we have included discounts for those of you who have attended previous science camps, but would still like to join us in February. The conversation is definitely enriched by having our regulars joining in. And new details are revealed whenever you revisit a subject. So we hope to see some familiar faces in attendance, even as we invite new people to join us for a deep dive into the science and application of behavioral analysis. You can register online, and if you have questions, do email me directly. And remember, Science Camp fills fast, so if you do want to attend, it's best to reserve your spot soon. Again, go to my website, theclickercenter.com, for details. And now that's been more than a long enough announcement. So next week, we'll continue with part two of our conversation with Sarah Mimi. Have fun.